Well, my wife had a pretty bad day the other day. She didn't know I was going to share this, but I wanted to talk about how broken she was the other day. Um, You see, she was watching her beloved Oakland A's baseball team, and and she is a diehard A's fan, okay? My wife is like the biggest Oakland A's baseball fan you can possibly imagine, and she was watching her beloved A's continue to continue to absolutely choke against the Detroit Tigers in Game 4 of the American League Championship Series. And she was crying and throwing things at the TV, and oh man, she was so upset. And by the ninth inning, when they hit that home run to beat the A's, I just thought that Casey was going to absolutely have a panic attack. Now, I hope you know I'm kidding. You see, I am the diehard A's fan. I, I was the one throwing things at my television and saying, oh, oh, no, not again, another loss for my Oakland A's. Yes, the the baseball team of my Youth, the the team that I rooted for as a child, got beaten mercilessly by the Detroit Tigers in the last four games. You see, the reason why I was so upset and the reason why it bummed me out so much that my team lost was because I put all of my eggs in the one basket of the Oakland A's. I put all of my stock and all of my hopes and dreams of a World Series championship for my team, I put it all on the A's. And unfortunately, the A's did not bring home the championship. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Have you ever heard that saying before? Raise your hand if you've heard that saying before. Okay, most of us have, all right? Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Well, we usually hear that phrase and it has to do with financial planning, right? We, we get a little older and we decide to start investing. And so we talk to a financial planner and the first words out of his mouth is, okay, I want you to remember this. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. It's dangerous. If you put all of your hopes and all of your stock and all of your investment in one entity, be it your home or the stock market or whatever it might be, that financial planner will advise you that that is not a wise decision. Instead, we are to spread things out a little bit. Diversify. Have a number of investments. So if one goes bad, the other one might come to fruition. Well, we're in Philippians 3 today. The title of my message today is One Basket for All Your Eggs. One Basket for All Your Eggs. And I'm not talking about Easter eggs, even though the picture is up there. No, I'm talking about one investment. One investment that is worth all of your stock. One investment that is worth all of your effort. All of your endeavors. One basket in which to put all of your eggs. In Philippians 3, Paul's going to say that this basket that we're to put all of our stock in, all of our hopes and dreams in, is the person of Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about how and why Jesus is the one in whom we need to put all of our hopes and all of our dreams. Let's take a look 
at Philippians chapter 3. We're going through this book. We started back in the summer. We continued last Sunday, and now we're continuing today. We're exactly halfway through the book. Philippians chapter 3, we're taking it verse by verse, starting in verse 1. Paul is writing from prison to the church at Philippi, which he helped to form about 10 years earlier. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would enlighten our hearts, open our eyes, so that we might be able to see Your Word clearly, that it would transform us your Spirit would use the words of Scripture to change us, to conform us to Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. In His name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. Let's go back to verse 1. Finally, Paul says, My brethren, dear saints at the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. This is just by way of introduction. Paul is making a transition in his, in his letter. He's writing a letter. And this is a point of transition. And he's saying at this point in time that what he's writing to them is not, tedi- is not something that is tedious for him. It's not something that is a labor for him. It's not something that causes him... Uh, that, that causes him frustration or, oh, I have to write to them. No, he takes joy in writing to the Philippian church. He says, it's not tedious for me to write these things to you. Instead, he says, it is safe. And what he means by that is, it is a safeguard to you. It is something that will protect you. The words that I'm about to say, Paul says, will be a safeguard to you. And I'm happy to write them to you. Verse 2, look what he says here. 
Here's his safeguarding words. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. There's some really interesting things about how Paul uses verses 2 and 3 here. He's going to use some very uh, strategic literary style to communicate his points. Notice, he uses the word beware three times. He's saying, I'm calling attention to these things. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. We'll find out what those mean in just a moment. But he's, he's using the same word for emphasis here. He's trying to draw our attention to this verse. Secondly, secondly, take a look at the next, uh, next note, note there. Dogs, evil, and mutilation. Guess what? In Greek, these all begin with the Greek letter kappa. Okay? He's using the same letter to describe the kinds of things that we are to beware of. Beware of dogs, evil workers, the mutilation, all of which begin with a K, if you will, in English. So Paul is drawing attention to this verse saying, pay attention, I'm using alliteration, I'm using repetition, because I want you to take note of what I am saying here. Also, just as an aside, the word mutilation and the word circumcision in verse 3, mutilation verse 2, Circumcision, verse 3. Those words also sound similar. And so that's yet another instance in which we see Paul is pointing out that this is of utmost importance. Now, obviously, you can tell from verses 2 and 3 that Paul has a focus on the topic of circumcision. Now, for time's sake, I can't give a, a, a long, drawn-out uh, uh, talk about what is the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. We're going to look at it briefly, but I wanted to share a quote to preface this discussion and to help us understand why in the world Paul is talking about circumcision in Philippians chapter 3. Take a look at this quote by Gerald Hawthorne. He says this, The Jews, the Old Testament Jews that is, originally understood circumcision as a symbol of the covenant relationship that existed between themselves and God. A covenant symbol. Symbol of the covenant. In time, however, many lost sight of its symbolic nature and made it, notice this, a thing of value in itself. That circumcision itself was valuable. As an external right, indispensable for establishing a correct standing before God. And so this, by way of a brief summary, is to help us understand how the Old Testament Jews and the modern Pharisees that Paul was dealing with how they understood circumcision. They changed it from a symbol of the covenant between them and God to, well, if you're circumcised, you're intrinsically valuable. You're an intrinsically valuable person. If you are a circumcised Jew, that means that you're automatically in good favor with God. And Paul is about to say, oh no, that is absolutely not the case. That is absolutely not the case. So we come to the question, back to the text now, who were these dogs? Who were these evil workers, these flesh mutilators, if you will? And the answer is quite simple. Paul is referring here to Jews of his day that were using the symbol of circumcision to demonstrate that they had 
a corner on the market with God. He is saying that these are dogs. These are evil workers. These are mutilators, if you will, of the flesh who think that circumcision in and of itself will accomplish anything. Will accomplish anything. Take a look at the text. He says again, beware of these dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And then he goes on to say this, for we are the circumcision. And the word we there is in the emphatic position. It's put toward the front of the sentence to say, we are the ones who are the circumcised. Not those who are the mutilators, the dogs, the evil workers. What in the world does he mean here? We are the circumcision, Paul says. He means to say this, that just as circumcision was a symbol of God's covenant relationship with Israel, it was symbolic of his, their, their close association with Jehovah God. In that same sense, Paul says, we, Christ followers, the church, followers of Messiah Jesus Christ, are now the circumcision. We are the ones in good favor. We are the ones in relationship. We are the ones in close association with God, not those who mutilate, not those who circumcise just for circumcision's sake. The people of this true circumcision that Paul has in mind are the followers of the new covenant, believers in Jesus Christ. And he's going to list three descriptions, three descriptions of these people. Take note of these. The first is this. These are people who worship God in spirit. Who worship God in the spirit. Literally, it would, it would say in the Greek, who worship or even possibly the word serve. Who worship or serve God by the spirit of God. Their worship and service is invigorated by and spurred on by the spirit of God. It is not invigorated by and spurred on by the Old Testament law and following the law. No, no, no. Worship of God is not inspired by legalism. Paul says worship of God is inspired by relying on the Spirit indwelling the person. When we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon us and indwells us. And it is by the Spirit of God that you and I now worship God. We don't worship God by human effort. We worship Him by the instrument of the Spirit, by means of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the means or the instrument in which worship is accomplished. And this is Paul's most fundamental charge against the Jews, that they worship by legalism, by abiding by Torah or by the law. But we, the circumcision, Paul says, we worship by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. Thus, Paul gives new meaning, if you will, to the term circumcision. And I wanted to share with you a passage that conveys this very, very clearly. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Take a look at what Paul says about circumcision now in the New Covenant. He says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That means literally physically circumcised. Excuse me. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, physically circumcised. But Paul says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, inwardly, And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. 
It's a new kind of symbol. Circumcision of the heart. In the Spirit. Not by the law, by the letter. And it is here, it is in this kind of teaching that many Jews, then, in Paul's day, and now, in the 21st century, point to this verse and say, Aha! Aha! This, this is exactly where Paul is abolishing the Jewish law. This is an instance in which Paul is creating a brand new religion, a brand new worldview, a brand new perspective totally and diametrically opposed to the religion of the Jews. Paul is off his rocker. They find irreconcilable differences between Paul, what Paul says here in Romans 2 and what all of the Old Testament says as we read it today. They say Paul couldn't possibly be speaking as a man of God, the God of the Old Testament. I beg to differ. In fact, what Paul is saying in Romans 2 is so in line with the Old Testament that we see it all the way back in the time of Moses and again in the time of Jeremiah. Look at what the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets said of this new kind of circumcision. Take a look. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, look what it says. This is Moses here. And the Lord your God will circumcise your what? Heart. Heart. And the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And notice what Jeremiah says. He says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskin of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see, circumcision was not ever a matter of just the physical form. It wasn't just a matter of the physical symbol. All along in the teaching of the Old Testament, the idea was that we, sh- we are outwardly circumcised as Jews to show our inward circumcision, our inward affiliation and connection with Jesus Christ. That is the purpose. And if our hearts are not circumcised, then what does it matter if our bodies are circumcised? This is Paul's point. There is a new kind of circumcision that was actually all along, back in the time of Moses and Jeremiah, taught throughout those periods of time, and yet the Jews had lost sight of it. And they considered the physical act itself to bring them value before Jesus Christ. Well, that was a lot of history. We learned something here about um, the historical way in which God identified with the Jewish people. He doesn't identify with us today in the church through this means. In fact, Paul, Paul will say in other parts of Scripture uh, that circumcision is absolutely of no profit to the church today. He says if you, if you circumcise and think in any way that this is going to bring you intrinsic value before God, he says that's bogus. He says this was for a time for the people of the Jews as a symbol. And a symbol is no longer Uh, applicable for the church today. But nevertheless, we need to know about it and we need to realize what Paul means by having circumcised hearts. Back to verse 3. Now, we looked at just the first description, who worship God in the Spirit. That was a description of us. We worship by the Spirit of God. Circumcised hearts. 
We don't worship according to the letter of the law. And he goes on to say, we are the ones who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Our boast is not in the law or in law abidance, but in Christ, worshiping God in spirit. And finally, he says this, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, notice how he mentions it three times here, going on into verse 4. He says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. What does this mean, confidence in the flesh? Confidence in the flesh for Paul. Kind of a stock phrase that he uses more or less throughout his writings. It means to put no confidence, no trust, no reliance on human effort to gain favor with God. No, no trust, no reliance, no confidence on human effort to gain favor with God. He says, the circumcision, the true followers of Jehovah God worship God in the Spirit. They, they boast in Christ, not in the law. And, and lastly, they do not put stock. They don't put their eggs, if you will, in the basket, in the one basket of human achievement. They put stock elsewhere. This last description of the believer in verse 3, no confidence in the flesh, is especially significant for Paul. Because he goes on to say, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more so. Or more appropriately, I had more so. Quite a bold declaration, wouldn't you think? Paul, in essence, is saying, for all of you who think, Jews, he's speaking to the, the he's speaking rhetorically, if you will, to the Jewish uh, element within the church at Philippi. And he's saying, if you think that you have any reason to boast according to your own heritage, your own works, your own Torah abidance. He says, I have much more than you. I have more reason to boast than you do. Let's see if he can back up what he says. Not only is Paul going to back up what he says in verses 5 and following, but he's going to make it indelibly clear that he had every reason to have confidence in the flesh, and yet Paul knew better than that. Paul knew better than to put stock in human heritage and achievement and education. Take a look at what he says in verse 5. Now, these are the reasons why he says, I should have more confidence than you in the flesh. Verse 5, he says this, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now I've color-coded. I hope you can see it. Can you see the green? Okay, good. I've color-coded this section because I, I see it falling in three basic categories. This is not rocket science, but three general categories that Paul is speaking of, of confidences that he had in the flesh. The first four, in yellow, boast about Paul's Jewish heritage. And not just his Jewish heritage, but his prominent Jewish heritage. 
The first is this. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, there's two words here. It says, uh, circumcised eighth day. We might translate it in English, I'm an eighth dayer. I'm an eighth dayer. And what that means is, is that Paul's saying, according to Genesis 17:12, which, which said that all Jewish males are to be circumcised on the eighth day, I followed that to the letter of the law. I'm an eighth dayer. I'm an eighth dayer Jew. I followed that to the letter. My parents, rather, followed that to the letter. Torah abiding parents. Of the stock of Israel, he goes on to, stay, on to say, I was born a Jew. I was not made a Jew by conversion. Of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. What's the significance here? Well, a couple things maybe. Benjamin was the only, uh, tri- uh, excuse me, the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. Did you know that? The only son of Jacob born in the promised land. Uh, secondly, Benjamin was one of two tribes that survived the, the gross uh, captivity of Assyria and Babylon. Uh, Judah and Benjamin to the south were the only tribes to more or less return to the land after they had been wiped out by the Babylonians in the 6th century. So Benjamin was a fighter. Benjamin came back. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, so this gives significance to his, his Jewish heritage. And finally, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. His, both his father and mother were Jews. Uh, he was not a mixed breed, if you will. And for the Jews, this was very, very important. Because I'll tell you, if you had a Gentile mother and a Jewish father, or a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, guess what you were called? A Samaritan. And the Samaritans as you probably well know, were not well thought of in this period of time. And in fact, when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? He specifically uses the Samaritan because he knows, he specifically uses the Samaritan as as the one hurt in the story because he knows that the people of the Jewish nation cannot stand the Samaritans. He says, I want you to have mercy on the lowliest of the low. The next two boasts in green indicate Paul was fiercely loyal to the doctrine of the Pharisees. Fiercely loyal to the doctrine of the Pharisees. Look what he says. He says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning Torah. Concerning the teaching of the Jewish people, I was the strictest of the strict. A Pharisee. I held the law in utmost respect and practiced it with, with, with the utmost care, giving attention to every bit of it. The sixth boast here, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. The demonstration of Paul's religious conviction, he says, was to persecute those who opposed Judaism. And in his mind, that's what the Christians were doing. They were diametrically opposed to the Jewish people and to the Jewish religion, according to Paul, before he was, before he had come to Christ, and so he says, if you if you are looking for zealousness, if you are looking for zeal, hey, I persecuted the church. And the final boast in white concerns the level of conformity to God's law that Paul believed himself to have attained. Concerns the level of conformity to God's law that Paul believed himself to have attained. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. 
Reminds us of the rich young ruler. What did he say to Jesus when, uh, when, Jesus, when he asked Jesus, what, may, what must I do for eternal life? And Jesus listed all the commandments. And what did the rich young ruler said? He said, I've kept all of these from my youth. What else do I need to do? That was his response. Paul's giving a response just like that one. He's saying, hey, I was a Torah-abiding Jew. I am blameless. Seven boasts. Seven confidences of Paul in the flesh. He had the best credentials for boasting in the flesh. And was precisely the person who you and I might think, wow, that man must be favored by God. That man must be favored by God. Look how good he is. Look at his family line. Look at his heritage. Look at his education. Look at his holiness. Look at how he abides by Torah. Wow. That man. That's a blessed man right there. That's what Paul wanted us to think. That's, Paul, that's what Paul wanted the Jews to think as he wrote this. And yet, what is he going to say now? Paul is going to turn the tide in verse 7. And he's going to begin to explain that all of these prophets, all of these gains, all of these personal achievements, if you will, were collectively one big loss in view of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7. But what things were gain to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. What things were gain? The seven boasts of, the, of verses 5 to 6. The seven boasts of verses 5 to 6. What things I counted gain, now I consider loss. Now don't miss the economic motif here. Paul's using a profit loss category here. Some of your Bibles indicate that the word gain and loss here is more of the idea of useless or useful and useless. I don't think that's the case. I think Paul is actually very much talking in monetary terms. He's saying that the things that I valued, that were profitable, that I considered investments, that I took my eggs and I put them in these baskets. See, look at all these baskets I have. Those gains, Paul says, I now consider the plurality of these gains. I now consider one gigantic loss. The word gain there is in the plural. He had multiple gains, according to verses 5 and 6. He had multiple reasons for having confidence in the flesh. But in verse, but equally so in verse 7, the word loss is in the singular. One collective loss. All of my gains, all of my efforts, all of my achievements, one collective loss. On the scale, it didn't even compare. It didn't even compare his personal achievements with Christ Jesus. What Paul thought was profitable was nothing but a loss. And let me be clear here. We're not, Paul is not saying that he went from a good position to a better position. He's not saying I went from a good spot in my life to a great spot in my life. No. He's saying what I thought was good was absolutely rubbish to me. And that's what he's going to go on to say in verse 8. What I thought was good was absolutely in the red, if you will. It was a negative to me. I'm not going from good to better. I'm going from a loss 
to the most excellent investment a person can make in Christ Jesus. Take a look at verse 8. Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Uh, Permit me to start toward the end here. The word rubbish is... (laughs) Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, quite a vulgar term, actually. It means dung. It means refuse. It means garbage. Paul says, what I thought was gain was nothing but dung. It was not gain. It was garbage. It was loss. It was rubbish. It was refuse. My human heritage my human achievements, my education, my superior lifestyle, done. Back to the start of verse 8. He says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now this word for, very critical. I want to highlight this word for. Uh, this word is, is better translated because of or on account of. And that is very significant. Uh, you can change the interpretation of this passage if you, if you leave the word for in there. I think you could, you could modify it in a number of different ways with the word for. But the word because of or on account of, dia in Greek, is a much better translation. And Paul is saying, I consider all of my gains as one collective loss because of because of the knowledge, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The reason I count those things lost is because of what I know to be true about Jesus Christ. That's very significant. It it, it establishes the grounds upon which Paul counts his gains as rubbish, as refuse. So we, I say there in the bottom, Paul considers his, his past confidence in the flesh as rubbish because of what he knows about Jesus Christ. He describes this knowledge as excellent or a surpassing knowledge because this knowledge offers not only eternal reconciliation with God, which he's going to say in just a moment, but it also offers practical wisdom for daily living, which he's also going to say toward the end of this text. This knowledge is a very personal and intimate knowledge. And the reason why we can speculate that is because Paul in this text refers to Jesus as, as my Lord. This is the only time in the New Testament Paul does that. Paul never refers to Jesus Christ as my Lord except in Philippians 3. And that gives us good grounds for believing that Paul here is describing his very intimate, personal, experiential, if you will, knowledge of Jesus Christ what he knows in his being, in his heart, to be true about Jesus Christ. A personal and intimate knowledge. What does this knowledge accomplish, is the question. What does this knowledge accomplish? We see that Paul considered gains a loss because of the knowledge. But what does this knowledge accomplish Take a look at the end of verse 8 on into verse 9. Paul says he considers all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord to the end of verse 8 that I may gain 
Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Notice again the word gain. This is very clear here. Economic, monetary. This is the illustration Paul is giving. He's not saying Christ is useful to me. He's saying Christ is profitable to me. Christ is like an investment to me. When I have Christ, I have something of value. Of utmost value. So we see the words gain in verse 7 and again in verse 8. How specifically is gaining Christ profitable? We see in the text that Paul speaks of not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. First and foremost, first and foremost, Paul is making clear here that knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus through faith is a great investment. Because in it, we receive the reward of Christ's righteousness in us. Paul states clearly that through faith in Jesus, we are given a righteousness that cannot come from the Old Testament law. It cannot come from circumcision. Circumcision is not of intrinsic value, Paul says, as we saw back in verse 2. But he says there's a righteousness that only comes and is only given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, our spirit is infused with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, when God the Father looks upon you and looks upon me, after we come to faith in Jesus, He no longer sees our flesh, our human sinfulness, our human achievements, our human attempts to become reconciled with Him. No, when we put our faith in Christ and the Father looks upon us, guess who He sees? He sees Jesus Christ in us. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you and in me. And that is why He can call us just. And that is why He can call us righteous. When God the Father looks upon you, the believer, He sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. And He deems you just and righteous because His Son is just and righteous. And His Son lives in you. That's the beauty of knowing Christ with respect to faith. Galatians 2.20 says it quite pointedly. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Friends, we often get frustrated when we sin or when we fail God. We, we fail Him every day. We sin every day. And oftentimes it it really disheartens us. I know it disheartens me. I get bogged down 
because of something that I did that I know I shouldn't have done. And I begin to think, because of my flesh, because of my former life apart from Christ, I begin to think, how could God possibly love me at a time like this? How could I possibly have any value to God at a time like this? I'm so sinful. I'm so wretched. But friends, what Paul is saying here is that you always have value. You are always intrinsically valuable if you have Christ. Because the Father, when He looks at you, He doesn't see your righteousness because you don't have it. He sees Christ's righteousness in you. Through faith in Christ, we are given Christ's righteousness. And so therefore, we are always a person of intrinsic value. Because when God looks upon you, even in your direst moments, even in your moments of darkest sin, He looks at you and He says, You have My Son in you. And because I love My Son, I love you. You have My Son in you. And because I love My Son, I love you. You have my Son in you. And because I love my Son, I love you. That is what the Father is telling you. In His Word, and through our communion with the Spirit of God within us, that is what He's reminding us of. That He loves us not because of us, very much in spite of us, He loves us because Christ is in us. Now we approach the end, verse 10 and 11. Paul's going to give emphasis on a different kind of knowing Christ Jesus and profiting from that knowledge. He offers this final word. That I may know Him. Repeated for emphasis. Paul's point here is knowledge of Jesus gives great profit. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Next slide, please. We'll see here three words, resurrection, sufferings, and death. Um, This is actually a very difficult verse to to interpret. Uh, I wrestled with this for quite a long time. Um, There's a plethora, a lot of interpretations to this verse. What, What Paul means by this experiential, if you will, knowledge of Christ Jesus seems to me that Paul is giving a very holistic picture of the, of the life of Christ. Christ was a sufferer. Christ was one who died. Christ was one who rose. Christ experienced the whole of life, all the trials and tribulations, and yet upon death, He overcame. And He resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father as the great mediator between God and man. And this holistic package, I think, is what Paul has in mind here, that we are to attempt to know Christ experientially, to consider Christ the whole Jesus Christ, the sufferer, the one who died willingly, and the one who had power to rise again. In particular, with respect to the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, excuse me, the latter two, with respect to the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death, 
I would recommend Romans 6. This talks. This is very akin to this passage where Paul talks about identifying with Christ's suffering and death. Identifying with Christ's suffering and death. Fundamentally, to know Jesus' sufferings is to conform oneself to His death. Excuse me. Fundamentally, to know Jesus' suffering and to conform oneself to His death means to embrace Jesus' sufferings as one's own. To, to die, if you will, to ourselves as we consider our experiential understanding of how Christ died for us. This, I think, is what Paul has in mind here. He's saying suffer because you know Christ suffered. Die to yourself because you know Christ died. This experience that you know to be true, make it personal, make it practical, make it something that you do in your day-to-day life. With respect to the first phrase, the power of Jesus' resurrection, I point again to Romans 6, but also to Romans 8, 10 and 11, which we don't have on the screen, but just to jot it down if you'd like. Paul most particularly means here the experience of resurrection in the here and now. Paul is saying that I want to know the power, that same power that raised Christ from the dead. And I want to know it experientially right now. I want to know what it's like. I want to know what a taste of resurrection life is like in the here and now. And let me clarify. Paul, Paul oftentimes in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of our future resurrection, our future glorification. What's coming in the future when we die and Christ returns for His church. And that, of course, is what we call the first resurrection, if you will. But, but Paul equally so gives great attention to this present resurrection life. He says we can have a taste right now of new life, of resurrection life in Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Well, again, it is very experiential. I think to a point um, it is basking in the glory of the knowledge of God. It is those times in our life where we get a glimpse, if you will, a taste of what that future glorification will be like. I even liken those times to the song that Jeff and Heather did. Um, I worship during those times. And I have my relationship with Christ is rarely stronger than at times where I hear a beautiful song that is worshiping Him. And I come into the presence of God and have that taste, if you will, of the resurrection that is to come, of the glorification that we will one day enjoy. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. And what is his point in saying all this? He's saying, don't sell yourself short. Don't assume that resurrection life is completely a future event. Christ is in you now. Rely on Him. Walk in the Spirit. Enjoy the fruit that comes from having God's life in you right now. Equally so, join the example of Christ's sufferings and death. Reflect on and identify with Jesus' tribulations, with Jesus' death, so that we can better reflect the gospel message to a lost and dying world. Finally, verse 11, If by any means, Paul says, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is not expressing doubt. We might think it is at a face value or a cursory reading. Paul's not expressing doubt of his future resurrection. In fact, Paul is quite adamant, if you will, Earlier, um, earlier in his writings that the resurrection is very much a fact. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Paul's not expressing doubt that he'll attain the resurrection. He's simply using a very humble kind of language to describe his eager yearning for that future resurrection. It's as if Paul is saying, in all of this, I remain focused on intimately knowing Christ in whom is my only hope for the resurrection from the dead. It's a fitting, humble statement from Paul, a mere man who looks upon God and says, thank you for the opportunity of resurrection in the life to come. How do we apply this? I have four things. How do we apply this message? First is this. God desires us. He desires us to worship Him by means of the Spirit of God in us. Do not attempt, I repeat, do not attempt to worship God, to serve God by human effort. Your focus, your mind, your understanding needs to be focused on the Spirit of God within you. And it is through the Spirit of God within you that we worship and serve God. We don't serve like the Old Testament Jews who worshipped according to being law-abiding, legalistic. No, that's not how you worship God. You worship God by experiencing the Spirit of God within you and striving with Him and walking with Him. Secondly, a high-class lifestyle, a superior education, personal chastity and charity, none of these human efforts can afford us reconciliation with God. Not one. It doesn't add up. You will not be with God if you rely on your human means to get there. Three, reconciliation is only available by knowing Jesus through faith. Only available by knowing Jesus through faith. If you do not know Jesus today, I would urge you to take a look at John 3.16, simple passage, and recognize that Jesus died in your stead so that if you simply believe in Him for eternal life, you will be with God forever. It's as simple as that. I encourage you to talk to me if you have questions. And four, this I had trouble writing, but nevertheless, I, I tried to express as best I could. If we know Christ intimately, intimately, our lifestyle will be epitomized by sacrifice, sufferings and death, and will exude a taste of what resurrection life will be like in eternity. Being around folks who I consider to be earnest disciples of Jesus Christ, and I know you know some folks like that too, I think you know what I mean. There's something different about a person who we look upon and you say, that person, boy, they are giving me a taste of the life to come. I see them striving with God. I see their worship. And I desire to have that taste of resurrection life like they do. It comes through knowing Christ intimately. There's one basket in which we put all of our eggs. It is Jesus Christ. He is the chief investment. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how it speaks to us. Your Spirit uses words on the books of, this, of the Bible, Father, and and communicates it to us in a special and powerful way. And our spirit identifies with Your Spirit, Lord, as we hear Your words preached. I pray, Father, that this in turn would alter our lifestyle. That as we seek to know Your Son, Jesus Christ,